welcome to the Medina East Campus. We're so glad to have you here as we are actually continuing now in the second week of a series that we started last week that we've been calling Resolve, calling Resolve. And uh, like Steve just mentioned a moment ago, if you are a guest with us here today at the Medina East Campus, if this is your first time here, or if maybe a friend brought you or, or a coworker brought you or whatever, we just want to really extend a very, very, very special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're our guest and we hope that you feel welcomed. Uh, kind of like Steve mentioned, we'd love to meet you in the cafe afterwards. Don't, don't try to fly too quick, maybe just stick around and make some connections with different people. But if it is your first week here, or if maybe you weren't here last week, what we've been talking about in this series, kind of the topic matter uh, that we are addressing and going through together is that of conflict resolution. So that's what we're talking about in this series. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're sort of looking at this sermon series as a conversation on conflict resolution. And, and of course, what we said is, we said well, all of us know that this is a topic uh, that is immediately relevant to every person in this room. Uh, because the one thing that is universally true, no matter what age or what stage of life you're in, is that conflict is an inevitable part of the human experience, right? It's an inevitable part of relationships. That whenever you get people uh, kind of in proximity to other people, conflict is going to be a natural byproduct of human relating. And so because of that, here, here's what we said. We said the question then that we're trying to answer in the series is not so much how do we avoid conflict, because we just said conflict is somewhat unavoidable. So the better question to ask is what do we do when conflict arises, right? How do we, re how do we respond to conflict? And how do we look to resolve conflict in a healthy way? And so that's kind of what we're talking about together in this series. And if you were with us last week, if you were here, you might remember, we actually uh, just spent the whole week just kind of laying down a foundation and giving an introduction to this whole conversation. And what we talked about last week was we actually talked about the cost of conflict. And here's what we said last week, just to kind of give you kind of a snapshot. What we said last week was this. We said that unresolved conflict in our lives... Okay, so unresolved conflict in your life, the, the relationship that's broken, the, the, the thing that's happening that's unresolved in your life. We said that unresolved conflict in your life and or the inability to resolve conflict in a healthy way, we said is costing you. It's costing you, it's costing me, it's costing us, and quite honestly, it's costing us much more than we might initially realize. And so last week, we actually looked at the Bible together and we said what, what unresolved conflict is costing us, we said it's costing us personal wellness, we said it's costing us relational wholeness, and we said it's costing us spiritual rightness. And so we talked about that, and we said, man, it is costing us unresolved conflict in your life, even right now if you have unresolved conflict in your life, we said, man, it's costing you, and quite honestly, it's probably costing you, it's costing me, it's costing us more uh, than we might initially um, recognize. And so, by the way, if you missed last week's conversation, I would actually strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that. You can go to our podcast and listen to that. You can go to our website and you can watch or listen to that. And, and again, the reason is because I think we just build a foundation and we talk about what's at stake. What's at stake if we don't learn how to resolve conflict in a healthy way? What's at stake if we let conflict remain unresolved? And so, so that's why this is such an important conversation. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed that. Uh, but then what we also said last week, you might remember, is we said what we're gonna do in this series then, because there's so much at stake, we said what we're gonna do in this series is we're actually gonna walk together through eight steps to conflict resolution. 
Uh, Very practically speaking, we're gonna walk together through this series for the next six weeks through eight steps to conflict resolution. And we said that these eight steps that we're gonna look at actually come right from the Bible. In fact, more specifically, they actually come right from a teaching that Jesus gave. And so we're actually gonna be looking at one passage of the Bible for the next six weeks where we get to see kind of Jesus' take on conflict resolution, all right? So that's what we're gonna be doing today. Today we're going to be looking at step one in conflict resolution, step one in conflict resolution. And so to introduce you to this step and to kind of show you where it comes from, I wanna encourage you to grab your Bibles. Why don't you go ahead and get them? Let's just go ahead and get right into it. We're gonna go to Matthew 18, okay? So that's where we're gonna be headed today, Matthew chapter 18. This is the passage that we're gonna be uh, basing this whole series out of for the next six weeks, so you might wanna get acquainted with Matthew chapter 18. So go ahead and get there. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you um, here this morning, that's not a problem at all. You can actually borrow one of our Bibles. And in those black Bibles that are in the chairs under you or in front of you, page 688 is where you're gonna find uh, Matthew chapter 18. So go ahead and get there and you can find that. And then also, let me just say too, if you don't own a Bible, like if you just don't own a copy of God's word, we think it's actually really important that you have one, a physical copy. And so you can actually just take one of ours. You can take that home with you and uh, we'd love to make that a gift to you. So go ahead and grab that if you want to. So Matthew 18, go ahead and get there. Now, as you're finding Matthew 18, Some of you might remember, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that I actually gave a challenge. I gave a very practical challenge to everyone who was in the room. I said, whether you're a believer in Christ or not a believer in Christ, whether you're a Bible reader or not a Bible reader, my challenge to you last week was I said, I wanna challenge you to go home sometime this week and read Matthew chapter 18, to actually read this chapter. Now, just out of curiosity, for those of you who were here last week, and maybe for those of you who remember that I issued that challenge, how many of you actually took me up on that? How many of you actually went home? Man, wow, okay, I'm really impressed. Good job, you guys. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Now, if you went home and you read Matthew chapter 18 this past week, chances are good you probably recognized, or maybe this wouldn't surprise you, that Matthew 18 is actually a pretty famous chapter in the Bible. And the reason that it's so famous, or or what it's so well known for, one of the reasons it's so well known, is because this is known as the premier passage on conflict resolution. All right, so, so this, is, this is a premier passage that whenever I've heard people teach on what does the Bible teach about conflict resolution or about confrontation, Matthew 18 is the passage, the premier passage that most people go to. In fact, if you have your Bibles in front of you right now, if you just glance, for example, just glance with me down at verse 15. Do you notice verse 15 in Matthew chapter 18? It says right there, if a brother sins against you, If a brother or a sister or if somebody sins against you, if somebody offends you, this is what you're supposed to do. So so you can see right there that in Matthew 18, right there in the heart of Matthew 18 is this idea of conflict. What do you do when somebody offends you? What do you do when somebody hurts you? What do you do when somebody sins against you? And Jesus is actually gonna go and give very, very, very practical steps in how you are to resolve that conflict with another person. All right, so you see it right there, a very famous passage on confrontation and on conflict resolution. Now, now here's the thing, all right? Here's kind of the problem. The problem is that most of the time, most of the teaching, and I wouldn't say all of it, but most of the teaching that I've heard or I've read on the biblical perspective of conflict resolution, a lot of times what they'll do is they will go to Matthew 18, which, by the way, is, is the right thing to do because this is the premier passage on conflict resolution. However, what I've noticed is most of the time I've heard people teach on conflict resolution, they'll go to Matthew 18 and they will start in verse 15. 
They'll start in verse 15. What do you do when someone hurts you? What do you do when someone offends you? All right? Now, here's the problem with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you're tracking with me, you can probably pick up on this. The problem with that is that if you jump into Matthew 18 and you start in verse 15, you're actually catching Jesus in the middle of his teaching. You're actually catching Jesus. It'd be like walking into this room in the middle of a sermon, which means this. It means that there's some stuff that Jesus said before that, and it means that there's some stuff that Jesus says after that. And so, so listen, here, here's the thing, and I think all of us understand this. I think all of us know the danger. There is a danger. If you just jump into a conversation like midway through and you just grab a soundbite and then jump back out, right? I think all of us know that there is a danger to that because what you're susceptible to doing is taking it out of context, misunderstanding it, and honestly, quite honestly, you're susceptible to abusing it. And by the way, as it relates to this passage in Matthew 18, I was just mentioning to you, many people have abused it because they'll take it and they will take a soundbite of what Jesus said and they'll pull it out of context and they'll make it say whatever they want it to say. And so that's a very dangerous thing. And so what we wanna do, like I said in the series, is we wanna start at the beginning of the conversation. We wanna go to the beginning. We wanna see what is the context in which, now we're gonna talk about what happens when somebody offends. We're gonna get there but man, you gotta start back at the beginning. And so that's where we're gonna be looking at the whole conversation. Now, here's the thing though. Okay, if you read Matthew chapter 18, this presents a bit of a problem. And the problem is this. And again, if you, if you actually kind of took me up and you did, you did that challenge and you went and read Matthew 18, you probably noticed that Matthew 18, at least at first read, if you read the whole chapter, it seems like there is no apparent logical flow to the conversation that's being had. So let me, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. I wanna give you an outline of Matthew 18. So if you didn't read Matthew 18, or maybe if, you, if you've never read the Bible or whatever, let me just show you the outline of the conversation that Jesus is having, of the teaching. Okay, so it starts off, the whole thing starts with a question that the disciples ask. So everything that Jesus is gonna say in Matthew 18 is gonna come as a response to a question that the disciples asked him, okay? And then Jesus is gonna go on from verse two to six, and he's gonna talk about children. Then after talking about children, he's gonna talk about amputation, cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye. And then after amputation, he's gonna talk about sheep, because, you know, why not? Obviously, that has everything to do with everything else. Then after that, he's gonna talk about confrontation. What do you do if someone sins against you? And then at the very end, his grand finale is he's gonna end with a story about some guy who is really unmerciful and who is really unforgiving, and that's the end of the teaching. And like I said, at first glance, at first read, when you read Matthew 18, it looks like the whole conversation is disjointed and nothing has to do with anything else, and that's why a lot of people take stuff, little sound bites, and they take them out of context. But here's, of course, what I believe, and here's what I want us to see in this series, and here's why we're taking six weeks to go through this. It's because I believe that not only are all of these topics related, but I think that they all help enlighten each other and that it further supports Jesus's logic and really the heart of what's behind conflict resolution. All right, so for that reason, we are going to start in verse one. We're gonna start at the beginning of the conversation that Jesus is having. So let's look at it together. And here's how it starts, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's just stop there for a second. So like I said, everything that Jesus is about to say in Matthew 18 flows from a question that his disciples posed to him. 
And what is the question the disciples ask? Well, it tells us right here, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, let let me kind of help you out and give you a little bit more uh, of what's behind this question. So uh, one of the things that you might know is that, um, that Matthew, the book of Matthew is actually, a, it's called a gospel, and it's the account of the life of Jesus. And there's actually four of those in the New Testament, four accounts of the life of Jesus. And oftentimes they tell parallel stories. They'll tell the same story and they'll give you more details. And I want, I want you to see Luke actually gives us a little bit more insight into what's behind this question. So look what Luke says. Luke says about this same occasion, he says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Okay, so, so what's going on here? Well, I think you can see what's going on. What's prompting this question, the reason the disciples are asking this question is because they're trying to settle an argument. They've been arguing about who's the greatest, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom, who's in the greatest kingdom. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him the question, who then is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So we have to understand that the question the disciples are asking actually comes from a place of conflict. Okay, they're, they're trying to resolve a conflict. They're trying to settle a dispute. That's what's causing them to ask this question. And by the way, I think, I think just kind of a quick aside, I think this is important and maybe worth mentioning. I think sometimes if you're a person who kind of grew up in the church or maybe you grew up sort of in a more traditional church or kind of around church tradition, sometimes I think that the picture that tradition paints about the disciples is a little bit misleading. Because sometimes I think when we think about the disciples, maybe for some of us, we tend to think of like these halo wearing, you know, kind of stained glass, sort of like these holy guys kind of, kind of picture. But you gotta understand that the Bible is really clear that the disciples, the disciples, they were just as human as you and I, right? They weren't like this special elite club of these halo wearing kind of guys. It's not, they were just these average sinful people, just like you and I are these average, imperfect people. They would have been the same. In fact, commentators point out that most of the disciples were most likely teenagers. So you're talking about a group of young dudes, and and I don't think you need to use your imagination very much to just kind of envision what it must have been like for a group of 12 very ordinary guys, just, just like any of us in this room, who spent every waking moment together. You can only imagine what could have happened in that group, right? And one of, the, one of the natural products of that would be that they would have conflict. Just, just like any time you get a group of people together in p- close proximity to each other for that much time, there's going to be conflict. Now, sure, they were probably great friends, right? They're probably great friends. They probably laughed a lot. They probably had a bunch of inside jokes between each other, spending that much time, a bunch of young guys. There's probably a bunch of really weird smells that came out of that group. Like, let's just be honest, right? They're just as human as any of us are. But the Bible is really clear about this, that part of their humanity was that they argued. And they argued a lot. They argued frequently. And did you know that the Bible tells us that one of the things that they argued about over and over again, probably that the main thing that caused them to fight was this topic right here? Who's gonna be the greatest? Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the best? Who of us is the best? And they were constantly doing this. They were constantly jockeying and trying to get ahead and building a case and candidating for top spot. 
who is the best? And they would all make an argument for why they thought they were the best and they didn't think anyone else was the best. They were constantly arguing about this. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, man, I can imagine this. I can just imagine this going down. Like I imagine, you know, Jesus is walking ahead of them and they're all back behind Jesus and they're arguing about who's gonna, who's gonna be the greatest, you know? And I, I imagine they're all like, you know, well, Jesus is gonna be the king. So who's like, but like, who's like top dog? Like who's gonna be, who's gonna be like the MVP disciple, right? Who's gonna be like the goat, the greatest of all time? Like, among us, who's that gonna be? And I imagine Peter, you guys know Peter, if you know anything about the Bible, Peter was a loud mouth kind of guy. I imagine Peter being like, well guys, <laughs> it's gonna be me, right? I'm definitely the greatest. I mean, Jesus calls me the rock, right? Jesus said about me that he was gonna build his church on me just two chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 16. So like, pretty clearly, I'm the best. And I imagine all the other disciples were like, yeah, he did call you the rock, but then like two verses later, he called you Satan, remember that? He said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> And I imagine that, that John, you guys know John? John actually had a nickname for himself, and his nickname was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was the nickname he gave himself. And so I imagine John's like, no, nah, guys, it's me, it's me. Come on, man, I was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys were all down below. I was up with Jesus. I'm the one he loves. And I imagine Thomas, you guys know Thomas? Thomas is like, no, I'm the greatest. Everyone's like, yeah, doubt it. Doubt that. And um, it's a Bible, Bible joke, lame Bible joke. There you go. And all I'm saying is this. I don't know how it went down. I don't know how it all went down, but here's what I know, is that the, con you need to know this. The context of Matthew 18 is conflict. And so what, what's gonna cause Jesus to say everything that he's gonna say is that there's this dispute, there's this argument that's happening between the disciples, and they're arguing over who's the greatest. And the reason they come to Jesus and ask this question is they're looking to get a conflict resolved. They're looking for Jesus to settle a dispute. In fact, just to further kind of emphasize this. I want you to notice here the question that they ask, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's actually really fascinating. When you look at this question back in the original Greek language in which it was written, you notice something really fascinating, and that is that the sentence structure in Greek uses the Greek participle that begins this sentence with the word so. And so if I could, if I could reword it so that it would kind of mirror what the Greek says, it would look like this. So the disciples came to Jesus and they said, so, who then is the greatest? So, so you, see what, you see what's going on here, right? Disciples are arguing and they're all jockeying to try to get top spot. Here's why I'm the best. Here's why you stink. Here's why I'm great. Here's why I'm awesome. Here's why you're not. And then finally, like, you know what? We can't resolve it. Let's go ask Jesus. So they go to Jesus and they're like, so, so, Jesus, who's right? and who's wrong? So, Jesus, who is it after all? Who's it gonna be? Now, here's what I want you to notice, because I love, I love Jesus. I love the way he responds to questions, because you're gonna watch that Jesus does not answer their question the way that they hope he would. In fact, what you're gonna see is Jesus does not go on to resolve their dispute. He doesn't settle their argument. That's not I mean. Jesus doesn't just answer them the way that they want. He's not just like, okay, I'll tell you. It's Peter. You know, Peter, he's gonna be the first pope, so it's him, right? He doesn't do that. He's not like, it's Philip. Philip, you know, he's gonna have a screwdriver named after him one day or whatever. That's, that's, not, even, that's not even accurate, but whatever, right? That's not what he does. He doesn't do that. He doesn't answer. He doesn't settle their dispute. He doesn't answer them the way that they hope that he's going to answer them. But instead, rather than answering their question, he instead confronts their thinking. Jesus is gonna confront the way they think. 
And I want you to notice what he does because this would have been so unexpected and this would have been so wild and probably so confusing to the disciples. But watch this. Verse two, he called a little child to him and he placed the child among them. So this is nuts. Okay, so I, I don't know how this all panned out, I, but I have a picture in my mind of how it went. And so here's how I imagine it. I imagine the disciples are all arguing over, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the best, an argument they kept having. And they finally said, let's just go ask Jesus. They go to Jesus, and I imagine all of them are lined up there, all 12 of them, just lined up there right in front of Jesus, like middle school students getting picked for a dodgeball game, right? And I imagine they're all just standing there, and they're like, okay, Jesus, so who's it gonna be? Who's the first, who's your first pick, Jesus? And I imagine Jesus looks at them and he sees what's in their heart and he sees the argument that they're having and he sees that they're thinking about it all wrong. And so Jesus does something really unexpected and Jesus goes, um, someone get that child. Let me see that child, bring the child up here. And they all would have been so shocked. So the Bible says that Jesus takes a child. And by the way, some of you might be thinking, what kind of child are we talking about? Are we talking about like a toddler? Are we talking about like an adolescent? Like what kind of child, what kind of child are we referring to here? By the way, I think it's interesting. Commentators uh, tell us that most likely Jesus is probably holding a toddler or a baby. And the reason for that is because when you look at parallel stories in some of the other gospels, the Bible says that Jesus held the child, right? So you're not gonna hold a 10-year-old. That's kind of awkward. So he's holding a toddler. He's holding a baby is what he's doing. So Jesus takes his child and he brings a child among them. Now, you guys probably know this. Um, Jesus taught a lot in a lot of different really creative ways. He would use parables, he would tell stories, he would use object lessons. And so here, what we see Jesus is doing is he's actually using an object lesson to make a spiritual point about a spiritual truth. And so what is the spiritual truth that he's trying to convey? Well, check this out. He said to them, truly I tell you, Unless you, this is really important, unless you change, unless you change. So Jesus is, again, he is not, he's confronting the way they think. He's confronting the way that they're viewing themselves and they're viewing others and they're viewing the conflict. He says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is really interesting. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying here, right? Is Jesus saying that the first step in conflict resolution is that we need to become childish? You're like, wait a minute. I thought that was the problem, right? They're being so childish. Quit acting like a child. My husband's acting like a child. Quit acting like a kid, right? I thought that was the problem. Is Jesus saying that what we need to do is we need to be more childish? Now, just to clarify, Jesus is not saying that we need to be more childish. What he's saying is we need to be more childlike. In other words, what he's saying is there is a key characteristic in children that we need to try to emulate or that we need to pursue. And what is that characteristic? What is the characteristic? What is the trait in children that Jesus is referring to, right? What is he talking about? Well, I want you to notice the Bible actually tells us. It helps us, and here it is. The Bible says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So what is the character trait that Jesus is talking about? Now, this is important, okay? Jesus is not saying that children are somehow more innocent or somehow more sinless or somehow have some special relationship with God that no one else can have. That's not what he's saying at all. He's pointing to one particular character trait, and the character trait he's referring to is that of lowly position, or some of your translations might say it this way. You need to be as humble, as humble as this little child. And so what is, what is Jesus saying to these guys? 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you wanna be a person that lives in my kingdom, that is, if you wanna be a person that's under my jurisdiction, if you wanna be a, pe- a person that lives under my leadership and underneath my kingdom of peace and my dominion of authority, he says, then you need to change the way you think. And he says, and the key characteristic is that you need to be a person that is humble. You need to be humble. Now, I think, just to kind of further clarify, I think that some of what Jesus is saying here gets a little bit lost in translation because we live in a different culture. And so I want you just to, i put it this way. I want you to just think about this way for a moment. What was the question that the disciples asked him? They said, who's gonna be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's gonna be the greatest in your kingdom? Okay, so let's go with that metaphor for a minute. Who is the greatest in a kingdom? Well, a king is the greatest in a kingdom. And then who else? Well, people with authority and people with position and people who have high honor and dignity, those kind of people, the power brokers, people with a bunch of money. Those are the people who are important in the kingdom. And back in Jesus' time, who is the lowest in the kingdom? Well, see, it would have been children. And this is where, like I said, there's a little bit of a cultural disconnect because in our culture, children are actually pretty highly esteemed. In fact, in many instances, we will oftentimes favor the voice of children even over the the voice of adults in some situations. But that was not the way it was back in this time. In fact, back in this time, children were considered the lowest, on the lowest level of the social ladder. Galatians chapter four tells us that back in this time, children were viewed basically on par with only slaves. Children had no rights. Children had, um, they had no say in anything. They were the lowest. So what's Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you have to humble. You have to be humble. That's what he's talking about. It's about humility. Now I know, maybe for some of you, even as we're talking about this, you're trying to wrap your mind around what does it mean to be like a child? What is that even talking about? And so to further clarify, let me just give you three quotes. I wanna give you three quotes that I think are pretty helpful that I got from three different sources, three different Bible commentaries that I think might help clarify what Jesus is saying here. Okay, so let me just show them to you real quick. The first one comes from a guy named D.A. Carson. Okay, so D.A. Carson is actually a professor and he's a Bible commentator. And here's what he says about this passage. He says, this child is a model in this context, not of innocence, faith, or purity, but of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus assumed that people are not naturally like that. They must change. They must become like little children. See what D.A. Carson is saying. He's saying the key characteristic that Jesus is referring to is humility. It's humility. Let me show you another one. This one comes from the Tyndale New Testament commentary, and here's what it says. This would have been a total reversal of the human value scale. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not one to be looked up to. To turn and to become like, a, like children is therefore a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race to an acceptance of insignificance. All right, so one other, one other quote. Again, he's saying, what's he saying? He's saying it's about humility. It's about humility. That's what Jesus is talking about here, right? One more. This is Michael Wilkins. Michael Wilkins is a contributor to the ESV Study Bible. Here's what he says. The humility of a child consists of childlike trust, vulnerability, and the inability to advance his or her own cause apart from the help, the direction, and the resources of the parent. And what do all of these have in common? Here it is, again, what Jesus is doing is he's saying to his disciples, if you, if you want to resolve conflict in a healthy way, if you truly wanna be someone who lives under my dominion authority, he says, then you have to pursue humility. And this, I believe, points to the first step, the first step in conflict resolution, and here it is. You guys ready for it? Here's step one. Step one, in Matthew 18, what is the first step in resolving conflict? Here it is. You have to humble yourself. 
Step one, Jesus looks at his disciples who are arguing and disputing and looking for conflict resolution, and Jesus says, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. If you wanna get this right, you gotta change. And you gotta start by, with, a, with a willingness to humble yourself. Now, here's the thing about this, all right? My, my guess is, um, you can probably tell, I'm trying to find the right words to articulate what Jesus is saying. And, and, and I'm not sure if, if those right words exist to articulate exactly what Jesus is saying. But here's, here's what I know. I think, my, my thought is that all of us in this room, we probably know what Jesus is talking about. We probably understand, listen, I think all of us understand that in conflict, there is a, there is a necessity, if we wanna overcome conflict and resolve it, for there to be humility. Humility is entirely necessary in conflict. Because here, here's what all of us in this room know, and I'm convinced of this. All of us know that when there is a conflict that we are facing, right? And so if you're in a, con- even right now, if you're in conflict with another person or another party, I think all of us know this. We are all aware of this. It's kind of the elephant in the room. And it's this, that conflict is never simply about settling a dispute. It's never just about um, a disagreement, I mean, it includes that, yes. But it's, there's always a third entity. There's always a third element. There's always a third party present in every conflict. And you know what it is, and I know what it is, and Jesus knows what it is, and you know what it is? Pride. Pride. See, it's never just about we disagree. It's never just about we need to settle a dispute. No, 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 there's always something else involved. There's always something else that's there, and it's pride. Pride, you guys know what pride is, right? That thing, that thing, come on, come on, the thing inside of us, we all know this. That thing inside of us that screams me first, that thing. The thing that says my rights, my desires, my agenda first, that thing. You know, that thing, that thing inside of us, man, we all, we all know this, that thing inside of us that always wants to come out on top. We wanna come out on top. Look, it's not like we don't just wanna settle a dispute. No, 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 we wanna be right. We wanna be right. We wanna be, we wanna be the one who wins. We wanna come out on top. We don't just wanna figure out the, the disagreement. No, 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 no. There's something inside of us that wants to be right. That thing, pride, we all know this, right? Pride, that thing that is so easy to see in everyone else. It's so easy to see it in your spouse. It's so easy to see it in your kids. It's so easy to see it in your parents. It's so easy to see it in your coworkers and your in-laws and who has so easy to see in your friends and your roommate. It's so easy to see and it infuriates you when you see it in them. It makes you so mad. You're like, how could they be so proud and they're just clinging to their pride and yet it's so hard to see in the mirror. Pride, a thing inside of us that makes us unwilling to budge you know what I'm talking about? A thing inside of us where even though we know we might not necessarily be right, we're still gonna try to press the point and prove our point because we wanna be right, that thing. The thing inside of us that says, I'm unwilling to budge. If they wanna, if they wanna pursue peace with me, if they wanna resolve the conflict, they can call me. They can go, phone works both ways, man. They can, what is that? Why is it that it's so hard for us to say the words, I'm sorry? Why is it, why is it so hard to say the words, I'm wrong? Why does it feel corny to do that? Here's why, here's why. It's because of pride. See, and here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, if you wanna resolve conflict, 
in a healthy way. He says, here's the first step. It's not the only step, but here's the first step. You have to be willing to first look at yourself and address that thing that's inside of you. You have to be willing to look first and deal with your pride. And you gotta be willing to humble yourself. Now, now here's the thing. My guess is, but as you're hearing this, you're probably like, you know, okay, I, I hear you, and I, I, agree, I agree with what you're saying, but like practically speaking, how do you do that? Like how do you humble yourself? Do you just sit in a chair and like grit your teeth really hard and be like, humble, like is that what you do? Like how do you do, like how do you actually do this? Practically speaking, how are you supposed to humble yourself? And I think that's a great question, by the way, and so let me see if I can shed some practical light on this. In fact, I actually think that James, James is, um, is another writer of uh, of of one of the New Testament books in the Bible. He's actually the younger brother of Jesus. And he actually elaborates on and he clarifies what Jesus is talking about. So let me just show you what James says. This is James chapter four. James says, this is so great. You gotta catch this. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Which by the way, this is a great question. What causes fights and quarrels? So James is based, this is the question he's asking. What is the source of conflict? What is the cause of conflict? What causes conflict? It's a great question, which I think, by the way, before we look at what James says, I think if I asked this room, if I said, hey guys, what is the source of conflict? What is the cause of conflict? I think that if I asked that question, a lot of us would go, hmm, you know what, it's complicated, man. There's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons. It's a complicated, there's a lot of different contributing factors and quite honestly, there's probably as many sources of conflict or there are people in this room and, and you know, it's, it's kind of complicated. But it's interesting because James is actually gonna say, no, actually it's not that complicated. There's just one. There's just one cause. It's not, you, don't, you don't need to overcomplicate it. The reason that you, in fact, one of the reasons you're having a hard time overcoming your conflict is because maybe you don't know the source. And so James is gonna tell us. Now, let me just tell you, what James is gonna say here is bold, okay? It is bold. In fact, I'll just tell you, I don't think I would have the guts to tell you this if it wasn't backed with the authority of the Bible. So look what he says, all right? Get ready, brace yourself, this is bold. Watch this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. I'm telling you, this is bull. I don't know if I'd have the guts to tell you this, but do you notice a consistent theme here? Do you notice? Let's just count together. In one and a half verses, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, eight times, James says, you wanna know, you wanna know what causes quarrels and fights? It's pretty easy. Here it is, Ready? It's you, it's you. He says, there's something inside of you. There is something that is battling within you. There is something that's at work within you and it is causing conflict outside of you. That's what he's saying. Here's what James is saying. I'm telling you, this is gutsy. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, you wanna know why all the conflicts that you and I face in our life are with the people who are nearest and dearest to us? You wanna know why? because they're close to you. The reason that I have conflict with the people who are closest to me in this life is because they are near me. This is what James, and like I said, man, this is totally bold, because James says, what causes conflicts? He says, is it not that there is something at work within you? Is it not that there's something in you that's causing me? You see, and I wanna say, and you wanna say, no, no, it's something in them. It's something in them. 
It's something in my husband. It's something in my wife. It's something in my son. It's something in my daughter. It's something in my roommate. It's something in my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whoever it is. It's something in them, and I can see it in them, and I can see it in them. And James says, no, 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 no. It's not them, 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 them. He says, it's you, 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 you. It's something in you. And, and I don't think James is saying that's the only problem. I don't think he's saying that's it. But I think what James is saying is, see, the problem is not just that it's them, them, them. He says the problem is that in every relationship, there are two yous. There are two yous. And, you both, and here's what he says. And you guys, this is so profound. I want you to catch this. He says that at the source, at the, at the heart, the cause of every conflict that you have ever had with any person you've ever had conflict with in your whole life, he says that at its heart, at its source, is this. And this is so great. He says that there is a desire that is within you and you're not getting what you desire. See, here's what James says. And come on, come on, come on. Just, just listen to this for a second. Here's what he says. He says, in your conflict, here's, here's what's really going on. Come on, you want something. You want something. And you're not getting what you want. And because you're not getting what you want, that's part of what is causing the conflict that you're facing right now. You want something, and you're not getting what you want. You desire something from that person. You want something from that person. You're expecting something from that person, and you're not getting what it is that you want. And so you fight, and so you quarrel, and so you argue, and so conflict arises. Let's just pause there for a second, because um, I know some of you might be arguing with me or arguing with James in your mind right now, um, and I understand that. I think that there's some, uh, some, some very good objections to this, which I'm gonna talk about here in a second. But before we talk about that, I, I think, um, I just want you to imagine with me for a minute. Can you just imagine for just a moment? Can you imagine the difference that would, the, the, the principle that James is saying here, can you imagine the difference that could make in the conflict that you're facing, in your marriage, in your relationships, in, in that, that, that tension you have with your parents or your parents have with their kids or whatever. Can you imagine the difference that this one simple truth could make in conflict? Can you imagine? Can you imagine, just for a moment, if we were a community of people that said, you know what we're committed to? We're committed to pursuing humility. We wanna humble ourselves. And you know what? Anytime there's a conflict, here's what we're gonna do. Before we go charging in and demanding this is what I want, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pause. We're gonna pause. And we're gonna say, you know what part of the problem is? You wanna know what part of the problem is? Here it is. I'm not getting what I want. Can you, can you imagine, just for a minute, the kind of difference that could have in the relationships in your life if each party was willing to say, you know what, you know what part of the, pro you know what part of the problem is right now? You wanna know what it is? And like, you're really into it, you know, you're really mad. You know what the part, you wanna know what part of the, you wanna know what, here's part of the problem, I'll tell you right now. I'm, I'm not getting what I want. And that's part of the problem. Now, I'm just saying, man, I think all of us, I think all of us have experienced this that when humility enters into situations of conflict, it has a powerful, powerful disarming effect. Did you guys ever notice this? Did you ever been, have you ever been in a fight, like a knockdown, drag out, man, just fight with someone and you're arguing and you know, you're you know, turning your back on each other in bed uh, if, you're, if you're married, if, if you're talking about your, your roommate, that's awkward, but like that, you know what I mean? Like it's just, you know what I'm talking about? Like that kind of thing and you're not talking for days or months or whatever and then when one party, when one party, just steps out and, say, and humbles themselves. Man, you know the difference that that makes? When one person says, hey, you wanna know what part of the problem is? You wanna know what part of the problem is? I'll tell you what it is. 
I'm not getting what I want. And man, I'm just telling you, that has a dis. And so here's what Jesus says, and here's what James says. They, they both say the same thing. They say, listen, the first step in conflict resolution, not the only step, there's more steps, there's seven more steps. He says, but you have to start here. You gotta start by, willing, by, by, by having a willingness to humble yourself. It's not just point the finger, point the finger at them, but you gotta be humble enough to look in the mirror and say, you know what part of the problem is? I'm not getting what I want. Like I mentioned a moment ago, some of you might be, have some objections or some, might be thinking, and some of you might be thinking this. I, 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 my guess is, some of you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, okay, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with what James is saying, but listen, you don't know my circumstance. You don't know my situation. And some of you are saying this. You're saying, the situ- I, see, I, I'm not, we're not, for me, I'm not just talking about desires and I'm not just talking about wants. You're like, that might be good for some people in this room, but you see, for me, in my situation, it's not just a desire and it's not just a want, right? They owe me. It's not, it's not just like, oh, it's a desire that I have or oh, it's just something that I want. No, no, my conflict, they owe me. They owe me, like they made a promise. They promised me and they didn't come through on their promise and so this isn't just like some kind of like desire or some kind of want. This is like a no, you owe me this. Some of you are like, man, someone promised me, we had a deal, we, you know, we signed a contract, we have a business arrangement, and they, they're not keeping their end of the deal. They made a vow. They said, till death do us part, and they cheated, or they left, or he, he didn't keep his end, or whatever it might be, and it's not, I'm not talking about a desire, I'm not talking about, you know, whatever, I'm talking about something that they owe me. And let me just, on that, by the way, say, I don't wanna, for a moment, minimize the fact that some of you have been severely wronged by another person. Some of you have. And some of you have been hurt and harmed in such a way where that person did not keep their promise, they broke their end of the deal, they left you in a bad situation, she cheated, he she, she cheated, they left, whatever it might be, and I'm not trying to minimize that for a second. But at the same time, listen, and if you could have ears to hear this, it does not minimize the truth that James is saying here. James is saying that even if that's the case, just think about it, what's at the heart of that conflict? Part of the heart of that conflict is that you want something, and you're not getting it. You're like, yeah, but they, they owe me, and they promised, and they're not keeping their end of the promise, and I want them to keep the end of their promise, and I'm not getting what I want. And they made a vow, man. They said, I do, and they said they would, till death do us part, and they left, and I want them to keep their vow. I want them to hold their end of the deal, and I'm not getting what I want. Not getting what I want. And so James says, man, you gotta, it's not minimizing the hurt and pain and whatever they want. He says, but listen, you gotta be willing. You gotta be willing. First step of conflict resolution. You gotta be willing to pause and humble yourself and look at your heart and say, you know what part of the problem, you know what part of this conflict is, honestly? I'm, I'm not getting what I want. And some of you are like, yeah, but it's not fair. It's not fair. And, And let me just say, be careful with the fair card. All right, be careful, because here's the thing I know about all of us. We only throw out the fair card when we're the one in disadvantage. We never throw out the fair card when we're on the good side of, uh, you know, unfair. We never throw out the fair card. So for example, if you, just to give you an an example, if you were to go out to the grocery store this afternoon, which some of you are gonna do, and so you go to the grocery store, and let's just say it's real crowded, and there's two lines that are open, okay? If you get in one of the lines, and then another person gets in another line, and you just happen to get that one line where it goes twice as fast, 
And so you get through twice as fast and that person was waiting twice as long and they're still waiting. They're still in the same place in line. You're on your way out. My guess is you're not going, uh-huh, it's so unfair. They're, they've waited twice as long as I have. That's not what you do. Here's what you do. You think, huh, God must be with me today. <laughs> Spirit led me to the right line, right? That's what we do. So don't throw out the fair card. Don't only really do that when it goes to our advantage. Fairness ended when sin entered into the world. And so we can't throw out, what we have to be willing to do is we have to be willing to recognize that what James is saying is that the source of conflict, the beginning, not even the end of conflict, not even the whole conflict, he says a big part of it though, quite honestly, is that there is an unmet desire in us. And listen, let, let, me, just, let me just say this, with, with as much gentleness and as much, as carefully as I can, because I, like I said, I don't want to minimize the reality that some of you have encountered real pain and real harm and real hurt, and I don't want to minimize that. But if, you would, if you'd be willing to listen to, I'm going to try to say it as best as I can. Listen, when, un, when unmet desires in our heart, when we have unmet desires in our hearts, which by the way, James says unmet desires are the source of conflict. When, he, when we have unmet desires in our heart, listen, unmet desires are a powerful thing. They are very powerful. And especially when, listen, when unmet desires, whether legitimate or illegitimate, doesn't matter. When unmet desires become deserves, I deserve this. When they become entitlements, we become controlled by those desires. We allow them to control us. And what happens a lot of times is when I start saying, I desire and I deserve, I deserve. All of a sudden, what we'll do is we will start to cling to the identity of victimhood. And we'll say, I'm a victim because I desire and I deserve and they didn't give me the thing that I desire and I deserve. And so all of a sudden, we cling to victimhood and now we use this as an excuse to justify hurtful and harmful behavior towards ourselves and towards others. We use it as an excuse to say they're unforgivable, unforgivable, what they did is unpardonable. I will never forgive them. I will never forgive them. And we cling to bitterness and we cling to resentment and we hold on tightly to this thing that I desire and I deserve and we blame you and I say, I'll never be happy because you took this. And all the while, we are hurting ourselves. And for some of us, man, we are locked in a prison of unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment. And we're looking at that other person and we're saying, it's because of them. And we're giving them that kind of power in our life. See, and here's the thing, man. God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to be free, not just from the conflict you're having with that person, but from the conflict that's happening within you, within you. And so James says, Jesus says, you gotta start here. It's not the end, it's not the end. There's more steps, but man, you gotta start here. It always starts, you can't go through the next seven steps unless you start here. And you gotta be humble enough to say, okay, part of the problem is that I'm not getting what I want. You gotta be humble enough to look at your heart and say, God, examine my heart. What is it that I want that I'm not getting in this, con and how am I contributing to this thing that's happening right now, this conflict that I'm facing? I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are like, man, wish my husband was here right now to hear this. <laughs> but what do I wish my son was here? I wish my daughter was here. I wish, you know, I'm gonna send them the link this week. <sighs> they gotta hear this. See, and 
there you go again, right? Stop that. We have to stop that. I gotta tell you, I was preparing the message this week, and as I was preparing it, I was like, oh, man, I, I know some people that gotta hear this. <laughs> and then I felt, like, I felt like God was like, there you go again, dude. Like, you, you always want, we always want to point, and you know, I had this crazy thought yesterday, I don't know if, the, if this thought ever crossed your mind, but you know that person you've been thinking about the whole time, that you're like, man, they got to hear this. It's funny, because maybe there's someone right now that's like, thinking about you. <laughs> you are like, I really think they need to hear this, right? And so we got to be willing, this is hard, it's not easy, but we got to be willing to humble ourselves. I want to show you one other thing, and then we'll be done. I want to show you one other thing James says. I think this is so insightful, what James says next, I just can't pass it up. Look what he says next. You don't have because you don't ask God. Okay, this is, this is great. This is so brilliant what James says here. Okay, so James says, you don't have, what don't you have? The thing you desire, you know, that desire that's causing the conflict you want and you're not getting what you want. Look what he says. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. So, so this is great. For those of us who follow Jesus, I think this is really important. He says, I think what he's saying is, has it ever occurred to you that before you go demanding that thing from that person that you think you deserve, that before you go trying to extract from that person the thing that you want, that they're not giving you that you want, it never occur to you, maybe you ought to go talk to your heavenly father about that. Before you go start, did it ever occur to you that maybe you should talk to your father as his child? Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you should go to God and ask him to search your desires? Did it ever occur to you that maybe your desire is wrong? or that maybe your desire is wrongly placed? Did it ever occur to you that maybe the thing that you desire so much from that person, they don't have it in them to fulfill? And that you're trying to demand something that only God can satisfy? Ever occur to you? Now watch what he says next, because this is, this is so good. He says, when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. So you see what he says? He says, and when you do ask God, he's like, you just ask for what you want. Which, by the way, wasn't that the problem in the first place? That thing you want or that thing you desire? He says, so, so a lot of times when you do pray and you ask God, you just ask him to give you what you desire rather than asking him to change your desires or to give you the right desire. You just ask him to give you the thing that you desire, which was the problem in the first place. And so for some of you, for example, if I asked you, hey, in the conflict you're facing right now, you know, with, your, with whoever, your spouse or your son or your daughter or your roommate or your friend or whoever, are you praying for that person? Are you praying in your conflict? So you'd be like, well, no. Okay, well, that's probably a good, good place to start, right? And for some of you, if I said, are you praying? You'd be like, well, yes. As a matter of fact, I am praying in my conflict right now. And if I said, okay, well, tell me, what are you praying? What is the content of your prayers? You would say this. You'd be like, yeah, I'm praying. I'm praying, pastor. I'm praying. I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my wife. But what are you praying? I'm praying that God would show them the error of their ways. And I'm praying that they would come to realize that I'm right and they're wrong and that they would do what I want. That's what I'm praying for. In Jesus' name, amen. And God's like, I'm not listening to that prayer. Because here's right. If I'm like, are you praying? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm praying. Pastor, I'm praying. Praying. I'm like, what are you, what are you praying? Yeah, I'm praying for my teenage son. I'm praying for my teenage daughter. They don't, they don't see it my way. So what are you praying for? Here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that they would come to see that the plan that I have for their life is the right plan. And I'm praying that they would come to realize that I am right and that they would do the thing that I want. They would pursue the career that I want, that they would marry the person that I want them. They would do the things that I want them to do. That's what I'm praying for. In Jesus' name, amen. And I pray the Browns would win. <laughs> and God ain't answering that prayer. Right? He hasn't, and he's not. And I'm just, I, all I'm saying is, 
James is so insightful here. He's like, how about instead of going to God to just ask him to give you the thing you want, what if instead you went to God and said, God, would you search my desires? Would you search my heart? God, what is my contribution to this? And would you help fix my heart? Would you help put in me the right desires? You know, would you change those things within me? And James ends by saying this. He says, that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud. He shows favor to the humble. See, and James picks up where Jesus left off. And the first step in conflict resolution is that we have to be willing to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to pause in the midst of conflict. And instead of point the finger out, point the finger out, we have to be willing to look in the mirror. We have to be willing to ask God to search our hearts and say, God, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? And God, as, as my Father in heaven, would you help me, Lord, change my desires, search my desires? We have to be willing to start there. We have to be willing to start there. Ask the band to come up, and uh, as they make their way up here, I wanna, I wanna just kind of end before we pray with um, just a few kind of practical kind of takeaway challenges for us this week. Nothing too big, but I think in light of this conversation, a few of these things might be helpful. So one big takeaway, uh, by the way, we actually created, we know that this series is, is kind of a heavier series and that we're probably touching up against probably some very real stuff that's going on in your life. And, and so we actually wanted to create an opportunity for you to submit questions. If you have questions or comments or anything, really, it uh, doesn't just need to be questions, comments, or whatever, you can actually submit those um, at slido.com. Hashtag resolve. So if you look in your programs, there actually is very specific instructions of how you can submit questions. And so we are uh, gonna let you submit questions if you have any questions, even if today, if you have questions based on what we said, or even if you have objections or whatever, that's fine. We, we, we invite all of that. You can actually submit that there. There's some instructions there. And then we, as a community, are gonna find some creative ways to help uh, address those questions. And so you can look for that. It's gonna be coming in the future. I know we won't always be able to address all the questions on the weekends, but we're gonna find some other outlets to do that too. And that'll be good. And um, that, that's first. Here's the second thing. Um, I think in light of today's conversation, I would even encourage you, maybe even in the next moments as we have an opportunity to worship and sing, for those of us who follow Christ, would you take some time to just ask, if you, would you be bold enough, would you be strong enough, would you be humble enough to ask God to search your heart? And maybe for some of you, this is a very relevant conversation because you're facing something in your life right now uh, where you're experiencing conflict. Would you be willing to pause even in these next moments and ask God to search your heart and to look for what are the unmet desires in you that are contributing to the conflict that you're facing? What are the steps you need to take? And then the last thing is, I would encourage you, of course, to come back next week for step two. Because as you search your heart and as you humble yourself, you're gonna find some stuff and you might be thinking, well, now what do I do? Now what do I, because I've humbled myself, I realize that I am actually playing a part in this. So now what do I do? Well, that's where step two comes in. And that's why we're gonna come back next week and pick up where Jesus left off. Let's pray. Yeah, God, I just wanna say thank you for your word. Uh, thanks so much, Jesus, that you, uh, you didn't leave us <clears throat> on our own as it relates to resolving conflict, uh, because quite honestly, for many of us, we don't, if we were on our own, uh, I think we would just repeat a vicious cycle over and over again. But Father, you've given us a way out, and you've given us a way to find peace and a way to find uh, joy, even in the midst of conflict. And so God, I just want, I want to pray for that. I want to pray that um, you would help us, God, to humble, or would you help us to be people of humility? It's so, it's so abnormal, and in a world where Pride is not just normal, but pride is even considered a virtue. Would you help us, those who follow you, who are in your kingdom, to be people of humility? Even if the other party is not, help us to be humble people 
that pursue humility as, as best as we know how. And Jesus, of course, I wanna say thank you that you didn't just teach us about humility, but you were the prime example of humility. Christ, you are a humble, you are a humble God. And uh, you laid down your rights, you laid down um, all of your luxuries and all of your uh, entitlements. And you did all of that for the sake of our health and our salvation. And because of that, we have a model to follow. You didn't just give us a teaching to glean from, but you gave us a model to follow. And so Jesus, I pray you'd help us be more like you. Help us to be humble like you are humble. God, I know that many of us in this room might be locked up in cages of resentment and unforgiveness that we've built uh, based off of our own unmet desires that have become demands, have become um, deserves. Father, I pray you'd, you'd set us free. God, please free us. Let your people go from the prisons that we create, that we build ourselves and lock ourselves in. God, you want freedom. You saved us for freedom. So I pray you'd set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.